We're in, uh, let's see, we're in Genesis chapter 18 today, and no time has passed since the last class. Abraham may actually still be sore from his recent circumcision. So he's sitting at the entrance to his tent. It's the heat of the day when suddenly he sees three important looking men walking past his encampment. And we just learned last week that the Lord often appears as an important looking man. And one of these important men is, in fact, the Lord. We find that out a little later in the, um, in the story. But uh, the other two, we find out, are angels. And these three men are on a mission. Abraham can tell they're in a hurry, but he also sees their importance just by looking at them. So he hurries out to them and invites them to come and refresh themselves. And when they agree to do that, Abraham again hurries. This word is used a lot in this passage. He hurries to tell Sarah to bake her best bread um, while he picks out a fatted calf for dinner. And clearly, this all takes hours. I, I kind of think the three men are probably napping in the heat of the day while all these preparations are happening. And finally, the meal is ready, and as they eat, they talk. One of the men, the, we later find out it's the Lord who is speaking, asks Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? I think that is such a weird question. He, he actually calls her by name. If, it, it, would, it would totally creep me out if a, a random important man came by and asked for my husband by name. You know, just bizarre. But anyway, he asked for Sarah, and Abraham says, well, she's in the tent right behind me. And the man says, I'll come back this way a year from now, and Sarah will have a son. So right then, if Abraham didn't know it already, he knows now that he is speaking with the Lord. This is, uh, this is something he's heard before. He knows who he's talking to. Now, Sarah is listening from inside the tent, and she laughs to herself and says, this is, she says internally in her thoughts, she says, I am so old. You know, remember, she's like 89 at this point. I am so old. Will I really have pleasure now that my husband is so old also? And by the way, I don't know what word is translated in your um, particular Bible for the word pleasure, but the Hebrew word is Eden, as in the Garden of Eden. So I'll leave you to figure out what this is a euphemism for in this context. So, uh, and the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? Now remember, she didn't say anything out loud, but the Lord repeats exactly what she said to herself. And then the Lord said, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a verse to highlight. It's in Genesis 18, 14. This, this is a verse to store in your heart. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he said, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The word that in the Hebrew here for time actually means appointment. We have an appointment next year. And it sounds to me like the Lord will return to be present at Isaac's birth. And if you flip ahead, we don't have any record in the Hebrew Bible of when that actually happens. But how beautiful it is to know that the Lord cares enough to be physically present at the birth. You know, somehow, 
I don't think he just paced around outside the door, you know, I think he was, he was there. So anyway, Sarah, of course, is horrified that the Lord heard her inner thoughts and she's terrified of the consequences of mocking the Lord. And she denies laughing. Oh, I didn't laugh. But the Lord says, yes, you did laugh. And I want you to notice how the word for laugh, which is Isaac in English, remember, is threaded through this whole story. She laughed. She Isaaced. And in this case, it was a scorning, derisive sort of laughter, kind of mocking. It wasn't mean, just, yeah, it's just a, yeah, right kind of laugh. So the men prepare to leave after the meal, and they, ha they have a ways to travel before, before nightfall. So it's later in the day. They need to get to, to, to where they're going before, the, before nighttime. And Abraham walks them out. And as they walk, the Lord thinks to himself, you know, I probably ought to tell Abraham what I'm up to. I want you to look at this relationship between Abraham and the Lord. Remember that in the promises, the Lord told Abraham to walk before him, literally to stay in his presence, stay before his face. And the result would be that Abraham would become whole. Remember? When you walk with someone, what do you quite naturally do? You talk, you share, you quite naturally and without any effort at all, get to know each other better. Remember how the Lord walked every day with Adam and Eve in the garden? There's nothing magic about it, no special formula. This practice of holding space with the Lord can be silent. It can contain words. It can contain heart groans. This practice is called by many names, meditation, contemplation, devotional time, prayer, you name it. But the essence of all of these is spending intentional time together, talking and listening. The Lord calls us all to just walk with him, just be present to him. And in doing so, we will quite naturally find ourselves pouring our hearts and troubles and joys out to him. And in this story, we see the Lord does exactly the same thing back. He pours his own concerns out to us. And so the Lord tells him, Abraham, I have heard a terrible outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah. This word outcry um, is understated in the English. It, it is used for wailing, anguish, cries for help, most usually due to violence of war or pestilence or destruction. I mean, it's catastrophic events pull out from humanity this outcry. And this is what the Lord heard. This is the cry of the poor and the oppressed. And our God responds strongly to these cries. Our God is a God of justice. And we, his people, must be people of justice. 
And Abraham immediately understands that something so terribly unjust, so violent, and so extreme is happening to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord is going to go down and destroy the metropolis. These, these cities are so close together, they're treated as a single city in this story. And Abraham immediately thinks, but surely there's some good people in those cities. Surely the Lord won't destroy them too. And he begins to bargain with the Lord. Now remember, Abraham is a very wealthy man, and he lives on a major trade route that stretches, as you know, all the way from Ur, all the way around and down to Egypt. Um, Bargaining is an art form in his culture. And here we have a record of how it was done back then. Uh, If you read it, it doesn't sound to me like much has changed in all these millennia. Abraham starts by asking if the Lord would spare the city if there are 50 righteous people in it. And the Lord says, yes, if there are 50, he would spare the city. Now notice that Abraham is asking for the entire city to be spared, not just the righteous. We'll see this is a major theme in how the Lord deals with people in the Bible. We'll see this all the way through. We have individual relationships with God, yes, but we also have corporate relationship with God. We bear the consequences of our actions as a nation, not just as individuals. And we instinctively know that. We can see that in operation in our own nation and in the nations of the world right now. How each nation responds to the pandemic is having a direct impact on its individual citizens. We need to remember that this is also the case in our relationship with the Lord. We are individuals, but we are also part of a greater whole. Jesus later talks about how we are like salt in food, how our own flavor permeates the whole. And he talks about how we are like light in the darkness, how we can affect the entire community. And here it is in action in this story. We are called like Abraham to remain in the presence of the Lord by becoming whole, by becoming, quote, righteous, meaning in right relationship with the Lord. We can be the difference between the survival or death of our nation just like 50 righteous people would have made all the difference here in Sodom and Gomorrah. In becoming whole, we grow hearts like the Lord's, hearts of compassion for the poor and suffering, hearts that are drawn to destroy systems of oppression and injustice. And in doing so, we become like salt and like light in our nations. We individually make far more of a difference than we realize. And why? Because the Lord loves us all, even the unrighteous. It makes a difference because he will put up with a whole lot of evil and injustice just to keep from hurting us. So Abraham bargains the Lord down from 50 righteous people to 45 to 40, to 30, to 20, and finally to 10. If there are but 10 righteous people in that city, the Lord will spare it. 
this unit of 10 is also going to come up a lot in the Bible as the smallest unit of the Israelite communities. Even nowadays in the Judaic tradition, 10 is the smallest quorum. It's called a minion nowadays. And Abraham couldn't go any lower. The Lord let him bargain down to the smallest number possible. From this point on, we follow the story from the perspective of the two angels who went on ahead. The angels arrive in Sodom as night begins to fall. Lot is sitting in the city gate. Now, this is a typical setup for a city in the A-N-E. A-N-E stands for Ancient Near East. You probably want to jot that down. I'll use that acronym a lot, Ancient Near East, A-N-E. The city gate is a sort of large room or a, even a, a covered hallway. It may have several smaller rooms alongside it. And the size of the gateway will depend on the depth of the wall around the city. So it will open then, once you get in, it opens onto the city square, which is the central marketplace. And the town leaders would typically sit in this gateway, screening visitors as they enter the city. He, Lot, may have been winding up the last of his business because it sounds in the story like he's alone here, like he's the last one there packing up for the night. And he urges these two important looking men to come stay with him overnight. And they say, oh no, we'll just camp out in the city square. But Lot knows how utterly violent this city is. And he knows those men will not survive a night in the square. It says he pressed them so vehemently, they finally agree to stay with him. Genesis 19.4 says that before they'd gone to bed, the men of the city surrounded the house. It says all the people, both young and old, all of the men in the city of all ages. Hold that thought for a second. The mob shouts, where are those men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. The Hebrew word here for sex is the phrase to know them. It, and it definitely means intercourse. It means that all the way through the Bible. And here, right here, is where people have said, see, it was a crowd of homosexuals. Homosexuality is such a terrible sin. The Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah over it. But hold your horses, not so fast. Stop for a minute. Remember, this said every single man, young and old, in the entire city, all of them. It made a point to say that in the story. Now I ask you, what are the chances of there being an entire city in the A&E, the ancient Near East, where every single man and boy was homosexual? That doesn't even make sense. Where would the young men have even come from? They didn't have in vitro fertilization back then. There had to be heterosexuals in this city, a lot of them, or it wouldn't be a viable city. This has to be a mob that reflects the population demographics of two entire big cities, of a big city. It has to be a mob of mostly heterosexual men. So if it's a mob of heterosexual men, why would they be clamoring to rape these angels? If it's not homosexual attraction, there has to be another explanation. And there is. You see, in the A&E, 
the gang rape of men was not rare, but it was not a homosexual act. No, the gang rape of men was done regularly by heterosexual men in the context of war. It was a common and accepted form of brutalizing and humiliating conquered soldiers, especially their leaders, their important men. It was meant as a statement of complete domination over the vanquished men. This is a well-documented historical fact. And that makes this whole scene make much more sense. This is not a mob in search of love and intimacy. That is ludicrous. Mobs are in search of violence. And this mob reveals the mindset of the men, all of the men of Sodom. It is a mindset of violence and aggression towards any stranger. The urge to brutalize and humiliate anyone perceived as, quote, other. We still see this today. This reminds me of the mentality exhibited at Abu Ghraib prison and other such places. And Lot responds in a way that also perplexes the modern mind. He steps outside to face the mob, closes the door behind him, and he offers to give them his two virgin daughters instead. Now that is truly horrifying. Why would he say such a thing? People latch on to the next phrase where he says, the men have come under his roof as an explanation. You know, this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is the rationale that um, they'd be violating, uh, that a in, the, in the A&E, the customs of hospitality and there are so important that rather than break the hospitality of coming under his roof, he feels compelled to offer his daughters instead. I personally think that's a pretty weak argument. I, I won't, you know, it's not a big deal either way, but I personally think that's the modern mind trying to justify Lot on some basis we can understand and excuse. I think it's better to approach this from the perspective of this ancient culture. I think this exchange shows several things. One, Lot has had a meal with those two angels and knows by now they are angels sent from the Lord to destroy Sodom for its wickedness. And I wonder if he, like Abraham, has been pleading for mercy on the city. And Lot knows that the mob's actions will blow this out of the water and will lead directly to the destruction of the city. And two, it reveals exactly how women were viewed in this culture. Women were property. Remember that. They could be bought and sold and were bought and sold to further the fortunes of the families involved. This is going to come up over and over. Remember that this was acceptable behavior in this culture. I think to Lot, the choice between the destruction of the entire city, including his daughters and family and all his wealth, versus the gang rape and possible murder of his daughters was a terrible trade, but a necessary one. Well, the men in the mob react strongly to Lot. They take this as a criticism, as Lot telling them they have no right to humiliate these strangers. Imagine the reaction if one of our soldiers had stood up to the others at Abu Ghraib. What would have been the reaction? I think probably the same as this mob's. 
they accuse Lot of being a stranger himself and that if he doesn't stand down, they'll do the same or worse to him. So at this point, the angels reach around the door, snatch Lot back into the house, and they strike the mob with blindness, causing immediate confusion and buying some time. They tell Lot to run gather anyone in the city belonging to him and to flee because they are about to destroy this city. Well, Lot runs to find his sons-in-law and warn them to flee. Now, these are men already married to some of Lot's older daughters, other daughters who are no longer living in Lot's home. And the, the men think he's just kidding, joking about the destruction of the city by angels. Like, yeah, uh-huh. So guess what the word is there? Uh, the word that I've called joking. That word is, yep, it's laughing. The Isaac word again. They Isaac, and they refuse to run. Lot runs back home. The sun is about to come up and time is running out. The angels tell Lot to hurry. There's that word again, hurry, and take his wife and the two daughters still living at home and flee. Go now and don't look back. And Lot still dithers. The angels finally, literally, drag him out of the city because the Lord has compassion on him. Even Lot, even this self-centered, indecisive man, this wholly ordinary man, the Lord has compassion on. Lot is forced to flee. It says the Lord rained down brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Brimstone is historically understood to be burning sulfur. We don't honestly really know what it is. Uh, and there have been a lot of attempts to explain what this might have been in terms of natural phenomena. And I've put several links for you in the study guide for later reading. But I don't spend a lot of time on details like that in these stories because the exact mechanism of how the Lord does what he does is not the point of the story. And you can easily get bogged down in the weeds if you worry about stuff like that. There's no need to try to prove or disprove whether something like this can happen or whether it happened with or without miracles. Don't, don't go wandering around in all of that. Stay focused on the message the writer is trying to convey. And the message is that God personally and physically destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their evil and their violent brutalization of other people for nothing more than their own need for power. They met their end violently because they were violent. And it says that Lot's wife looked back. It would be hard not to. It says she turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back. I wonder what the message is here. It has to be more than inadvertent disobedience of the angel. We've already seen that God doesn't kill people for being human. I mean, after all, her daughters and sons-in-law were back there, all her friends, her home. I remember how we could not take our eyes off the Twin Towers on 9-11. I, I think this has to be something much deeper. I'm wondering if it's meant to express how death follows swiftly if our hearts turn away from God and from the life God offers us? I don't know. The text doesn't explain, but it, it's something to ponder. And it says that early the next morning, Abraham climbs up to where he and the Lord had spoken about Sodom and Gomorrah. He can now see the smoke rising from the cities. 
and he knows that 10 righteous men were not found. Surely he must have wondered what became of Lot and his family. Well, what happened to Lot was not pretty. He and his two daughters escape the destruction in the plain and climb up to a cave in the mountains. And there they see their entire world has been destroyed. After living in the cave for a while, the older daughter convinces the younger one that there are no more men left in the world, that everyone has been destroyed. And this is a really important point for us to store in our hearts. Never lose hope. God's view is bigger than our view. Trust God. Don't be like Lot's daughters. These young women, like Sarah, decided to take matters into their own hands. They decide to get their father drunk and then sleep with him so they can perpetuate their family line. Their mother is dead. Their sisters and their sisters' husbands are dead. They don't see they have any choice. So here again, we see how extremely important it is in this culture to have descendants. The worst curse in the world to them is to have your family blotted out entirely. The biggest blessing in the world to them is to have descendants too numerous to count. This is foundational to this entire culture. It is the ultimate measure of success and failure. And again, we have to look at these stories from their perspective, from the perspective of the people who recorded them, not from our modern viewpoint. So the daughters did indeed get pregnant, and their descendants became the Moabites and the uh, Edomites, uh, I'm sorry, the Ammonites, the Moabites and the Ammonites. They're shown just east of the Dead Sea here um, um, on this handwritten map. The, the words are green. I put this map in your study guide uh, and, and it's in the reference section at the beginning and it shows approximately where each of the nations are that we've already talked about or that will come up very soon in our story. And there's also a table right next to the map with some interesting tidbits about each one of these nations. Uh, and in the table of contents, I thought, you know, it might be helpful to you guys if I highlighted in red sections that change each week. I don't just add to the bottom. I add to the reference section and, uh, and I've added to the names of God because we've run across a couple of, of new ones of those last week, remember, uh, or the week before. I, don't, I think it was last week. So anyway, now it's your turn. This story is not the only place in the Bible that Sodom and Gomorrah come up. They become a symbol of the worst kind of sin imaginable, the kind that causes the Lord to come in person to wipe it out. And the Bible has many references explaining exactly what sin it was that Sodom and Gomorrah committed. I've listed the references in the study guide along with some questions for you to, to discuss. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen here. and. Um, put you in your breakout rooms. Do you have any questions before we go? All right. Um, I have, I have a yeah. quick question, Gail. Um, uh -huh. I was reading in the NIV um, version, the new Oxford annotated Bible. Um, and it mentioned the sons-in-law um, and seemed to imply that they were fiancés. 
of the two yes, daughters? And, and that is, you know, you can look at it that way. Um, but uh, I personally think it, it makes more sense and reads more smoothly to, that the, the sons-in-law were actually sons-in-law living elsewhere with their wives, other daughters, and that he still had these two younger daughters at home. Either way works, you know, either way. We don't know for sure, but um, that's just how I look at it. Okay, All right. thanks. Any other questions? Okay, here we go. All righty. Well, that was interesting. Um, tell me what you guys saw the Bible itself saying was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I'm, I'm going to go because I, I had offered Julia, but I'm going to take pity on her and I'm going to try and, and give your words for you. So, um, so the, uh, the, the first reading that we had was that um, these people had no discernment. They had no sense um, so basically, they were living in the moment without any regard for their consequences. And as a result, they produced um, pain for others because their, their grapes were poison. And when they made wine from that, they uh, must have killed off a lot of folks so, from their, for their produce. So there was uh, nothing good about it. So that's, that's one thing. Mm. Okay, what else did you guys see? Gail Ross had to leave. He uh, got called into a work meeting. Oh, okay. But he came up He came up with the best word. Our group was like, yes, this is great. And the, the basic thing that he came up with was lovers of self. Mm -hmm. And then Barb um, added the word arrogance. And that's what we see all through all of this is mm -hmm. selfishness, loving themselves, um, and arrogance. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What did some, what, tell me some more guys. One of the things we discussed in our group was that they used the word sense. They had no sense and they didn't use the word childish, which childish is very much those things, but it's innocent. It's without knowing. And so when you have no sense, it's intentional, it's with knowing, because there were people advising them, and they disregarded that and continued about. Right. There was a strong theme um, in, these, in these passages, especially in that whole first set, uh, that named specific things that they failed to do. And sometimes it named them in terms of what they should have been doing, which meant they weren't. What did you see? They didn't help the needy. Um, they did detestable things, which we figured was the gang rape stuff, and that they were very selfish and arrogant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and they, they did oh. Sorry, they also ignored the call of the fatherless, which, man, we put some parallels to present times for that, for the cause of the widow. And so they, they were oppressing an already oppressed people group. And as a Hebrew nation, they were supposed to take care of each other. 
Mm -hmm. They were supposed to look out for each other. They were supposed to, um, uh, to take care of those fatherless and the widows and all of those things that was part of their culture and they were just totally denying that culture and um, uh, again being self-centered and loving themselves yeah we 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 were making note of the fact that these were all condemnations against israel and judah comparing them to sodom and gomorrah and saying you're just as bad if, as if not worse because you are not doing the things you were told to do and you are, are guilty of oppression and violence and selfishness. Yes. Go ahead. One other thing we wondered was um, when it says in Jude that they're going after strange flesh is that they were going to rape the angels and that rape is a sign of dominance. So they were trying to pronounce themselves as dominant over the angels, over God, over them. They wanted, they were declaring themselves the ultimate power. We also compared it to what we see going on in the United States these days, um, how much self-centeredness there is. And my rights, my interests, my needs are more important than anybody else's. And, you know, if you look at not taking care of the children and the poor and the widows and the orphans and mm -hmm. what's going on in our nation right now, oh my gosh. So yeah, we, we saw a lot of comparisons to the sins that were, and none of them had to do with sexuality. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that interesting? You know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, the one that, that is most explicit excuse me, there was a lot of them. But in that whole first section, there the one out of Isaiah 1, 1, 10 and 15 through 17, and then the one later out of Ezekiel, were just, there was not anything in there about sex, actually. That, and we've already seen in, in our other stories that God is just not you know, it wasn't the sexual combinations that were giving him problems. What gives God problems and what makes him respond um, strenuously is lack of justice. That word is used a lot. And that lack of justice is has all these fruits of, of, of trampling on those who are weaker than yourself of taking from those who are the poorest to enrich yourself. Gail, we noticed in that very last passage for part three, we, we got to it in the last one minute. So we went through it really fast, but what we did note, and I think Barb noted is that there is sex mentioned in there, but again, it's self centered sexuality it's 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 um you know rape it's pornography it's things that um are outside the realm of a loving relationship it is once again self-centeredness it it really is did did uh, i know and i know liz just spoke about that last section did anybody else get to that i don't remember what section it was um one we got to was we noticed that God was upset and condemning all these behaviors, but he also outlined reparations 
that people could bring themselves out of that situation. Mm. Yeah, and Matthew. And, and that actually I mentioned in um, the Ezekiel passage that it ends with um, hope. And I didn't print that part in the study guide, but you can go back and read the end of chapter 16 in Ezekiel. And, and after the Lord just rakes them over the coals for these, all these horrible things they've been doing, and specifically the lack of justice and the, the grabbing of power for themselves and using it in terrible ways, the Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. You will remember your ways and be ashamed. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then I will make atonement for you for all you have done. And you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. And so these actions, they leave scars on the perpetrators as much as they leave scars on the victims. And I want to close here at the end of class just by talking about sex in this dynamic. Um, and I want to spend just a, a couple of minutes on that very last part from Jude. And um, as you see in the study guide, uh, I gave you the Greek behind, the New Testament is written in Greek in case you didn't know it, uh, the Greek behind those words and uh, that perversion it, in, means literally going after strange flesh. And I wanted you to be able to connect that to the fact that that mob in Sodom and Gomorrah was mainly heterosexual. It would have included homosexuals as well. Being wrong, doing, grabbing power is like not linked to our sexuality. <laughs> you know, it, 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 heterosexuals and homosexuals and, and, and all pansexuals, everybody in between. We, when we try to cut it by, by sex, uh, by sexual attraction, we're cutting it the wrong way. It cuts across this way, across everybody. This is a human, um, a human frailty, a human temptation. And, but I want to talk specifically about sex in this context um, because there are, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm saying that there is, there is, a, a way to have sex that is um, that there's there's no wrong way to do it. There is a wrong way to do it, and we fall into it all the time. Sex is wrong when it is between partners who have an imbalance of power. where one person can dominate or take advantage of the other person and the other person is powerless to do anything about that. It is where 
And it has nothing whatsoever to do with heterosexual or homosexual. When you are talking to someone who is struggling with issues of sex, be it a teenager or an adult, don't get lost slicing the pie the wrong way. Look first for the power dynamics in the relationship and speak to those and help people understand how to watch for red flags in any relationship, especially though one that involves intimacy. Um, and that's, I think, all we have time for today. Uh, I hope you have a chance to look at some of the links I gave you. They're just interesting. They're not all that important, but they're interesting to look at. And we will pick up next week. For those of you who have been in some of, in my Mark class, uh, I did a couple of um, series on Mark this past year, and several of the people in class were in those. Um, we're going to do a chiasm next week. So if you all know what a chiasm is, I'll give you a hint. The end of the chiasm is the first chapter we look at next week, which should be chapter 20, I think. You'll recognize that chapter as an almost identical to one we already did. So if you are the kind of person who enjoys a challenge, go back and see, see if you can figure out what the chiasm is that ends in chapter 20. Um, and I will give you another hint, and that is that there are two bits that don't fit. Um, and if you look at those two bits, they have something in common that will explain why they're in there and why you can safely take them out of the chiasm. So if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> I'm going to walk you through this, and it's going to give you a way um, of an, it's another tool for your backpack. It's another way to be able to approach confusing passages in scripture. So I'm looking forward to next week. See y'all then. I'm going to go look up the word chiasm in the dictionary because I have no idea what that word is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go over the whole thing next week. It will be fun. I promise. <laughs> Gail, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, when we were reading through all the passages, the references to Sodom and Gomorrah that you pulled up in the study guide, that there was only one in Jude that addressed the sexual aspects. Yeah. And yet that is the takeaway that so many churches that condemn LGBTQ people, that is the only takeaway that they seem to have focused on in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, it made me wonder, I mean, it seemed like such an outlier, this passage in Jude. And I read through the whole letter and thought, why is this in the Bible? It seems so different. It is um, different. And it's actually almost, I mean, mega parts of it are copies between Second Peter and Jude. They're both just like out there. And there's references to extra biblical myths and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And, and I thought it was really interesting that, you know, we have so many references in the Bible to the sin of Sodom being pride and injustice and violence and not 
not meeting the, the, the basic human obligations of caring for those less fortunate and those who have no power. And yet the takeaway in so many churches is, ah, it was the men wanting to, to have sex with men. That's the big, the big sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. And that's I what thought. I was trying to highlight in this class is that when somebody pulls that out and says that, they're doing what's called proof texting, you know, taking a verse completely out of context. Yeah, I was wondering about when it said that the angel sent Lot to go find the members of his house and to convince them to come with him, wouldn't they have been part of that angry mob? If it would was every so. man? You would yeah. think so. It doesn't so of course play, but it's certainly know. a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that I thought was interesting was that when it seems like when when God was was talking with Abraham and was, you know, finalizing the covenant with Abraham and he said, your entire household, all the men in your entire household, including your slaves, need to be circumcised. And yet when the angels rescued Lot and his household. It was just his immediate family that were under his roof. Um, and um, I, I, you know, that, that was an interesting point to me that this wasn't looking at the whole household in the same way as when God was establishing a covenant with Abraham. Yes. Do you have any insight on that? <laughs> well, I think one major difference is that Lot was a city dweller. And so the people that would have been in his extended household um, would have been outside the walls, perhaps, or living elsewhere entirely. And like I his, also, like his shepherd. I mean, the people taking right, care of all of his flocks that he had. Slaves. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, well, yeah, and, and I don't know if that had the, the um, impact or not, or if it was simply that they were not righteous and that the reason that Lot and his immediate family were, were included was because they were, I think in God's eyes, part of Abraham's household. Okay. Even though so they clearly weren't circumcised. So I don't, you know, it, and the Lord says, if you're not circumcised, you're not part of this, part of the promise. I just, I, I just, it seems consistent with the heart of the Lord that he would want to save Lot and his immediate family because of the connection to Abraham. In addition to their, um, there has to be some sort of righteousness in Lot. It seems to be a little bit of a warped plant, you know, but there had to be something. And one of the things I thought was if he had extended it to his servants and his greater household, wouldn't that have exceeded the number 10 and then the city be then spared? If they were righteous, certainly, yes. Yeah. So, so the implication of the story is that basically Lot lost everything. Yes. Which is very interesting, don't you think? Because he tried, he was the one that was trying so desperately to get. Yeah. So it must have been a pretty, I mean, 
I'm surprised that in this context that that they didn't go look for Abraham because he was close enough to see what was going on and yet they hold up in a cave so long that the doc the daughters decided well there must not be any men left in the world and why didn't Lot and his daughters just go find Abraham and was I that, wonder do you if think they that thought... was like a post-trauma thing it um, certainly could have been a post-traumatic thing that they did not feel safe to venture out. I think they may also have assumed that what happened to them happened to everybody. Mm. Uh, fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Gail. I'm going to go yeah. run yeah. some curbside. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot. We'll see you, see you next bye. week. See you next bye -bye. week. Take care, guys. Bye.